Hi, and welcome back to new Rainbow Cast Evolved to Steve Pliant, the podcast where we explore new debuts and see with color. We have a range of guests talk about what it means to be new debutant, and like always, this is no different with another new debutant guest. And today's guest is DJ Lucky Light. DJ Lucky Light is a DJ based in uh, Seattle, America. Which it, it was great to be able to record this one. It took a few weeks to manage to get on to, to win it. But I've been working on getting booked for a few uh, weeks or months. And we had a little break, you know. I had a delay for a few uh, weeks because he had a bit you know, like a court issue or infection. And thankfully, he was well enough to join me uh, recently to record this interview last. And this was a great interview to be able to chat to on the first ever podcast appearance like many of us Phoenix podcast appearance and in this interview I chat to about your experiences as a DJ uh, as you can tell by your name is you know DJ Lucky Light that you know it's an alias to Rock's name and she's the DM uh, DJ and dance uh, you know Reggie headlines gigs in uh, the area of Seattle, as well as doing other gigs in the state and beyond that. She's doing a lot of festivals and clubs. We talk about what it means to be a club in uh, and festival DJ being autistic. The challenge to, to do with that was century-wise. How she got a diagnosis. Her experiences of being parented by her mother. How she explains it was quite powerful parenting. And, you know, when they were diagnosed autistic friends was younger, she also talks about being a parent, uh, of guys being a parent, being a DJ as well as being, uh, you know, a female, uh, uh, divergent disabled DJ as well as her experiences using Adam Sex Plus, but Something I can relate to myself as using passwords myself. The, this episode also is when not uh, a year on from when I started this podcast back, you know, from its original when in 2020 and last year on, like like with uh, this ready, you know, where it kind of touches upon areas of diminished and what it means to, you know, our world is. And we was chatting last year to Laura's young in the first interview back from Dewey Gem. This one is, you know, I'll say you discusses uses of other past fires with, uh, you know, DJ Lucky Lady who use herself. And with this interview, uh, you can, you, if you want to try yourself with an adult past you know, like as a means of stimulus, which can be quite comforting. So, even for there's a PayPal percent discount uh, to mark this episode with uh, the passiveaddict.com. Just search for them online and you can get a PayPal percent discount if you enter in the discount feed. Any will cast, that is N E 
U R O C A S T. They will cast in the capital letters with no spaces into the discount code if you don't want to try yourself with an adult password, which I would recommend to any autistic. They will say for sensory needs, anxiety person, you know, who wants to try something and they all will stimulate something different. And they do a range of services and quite highly affordable and much will be cheaper still with five percent off from what is always re reasonable prices and you know my favourite choice for the past phase. So there you go if you want to try that and you'll be able to see uh, more details in the episode descriptor as you've shown clips on the you know when it goes out on YouTube, Facebook ones and on social media where you can get that discount and, you know, the different types of pacifiers you can get with that stuff from pacifiers and hopefully you can, uh, get, you know, use this and, you know, let me know if you manage to try, try them and maybe you can mention about, you know, if there's any first-time customers because this discount is forgotten math mention it's only here uh, being for first-time customers so if you've a first time I know would say this. Go give them a try and we'll use our five percent discount for first time customers only. And so back to this interview. If you want to me with this interview also if you want to get in touch about anything said on on this interview, ask me any questions, whatever, email the rainbow at rainbowproject.com. I'll find you uh, on social media at newrainbowfords.com and that's also the same code with like if you went to port to find out a lot more newrainbowproject.com where you can read and uh, listen and watch this interview and find a lot more about DJ Lucky that's my son there you go and here's the interview my name is Lucky, Lucky Light. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a DJ and a shuffle dancer, and I'm also ADHD autistic, and I have type 1 diabetes. ADHD is something that I've seen you touch upon on social media. Do you want to start by going into how you got diagnosed and understood that you were autistic and an ADHD and about that? Growing up, my best childhood friend was diagnosed autistic as a young child. He was a, a boy and we we were very close. We played very well together because I was female. I was much better at masking. I was always just like the, the quirky, the interesting girl or like the weird girl, which was fine. I didn't mind that, but I definitely had you know, things about me that my mom always just was like, she's just cool. She's just interesting. And it wasn't until I was a mom and I was dealing with my own children who were showing signs of things. And I was kind of deep diving into maybe how can I help them learning that they were autistic as well. And when I was 20, that's when I was speaking to a doctor about it. And then from there, saw a neuropsychologist and was diagnosed at 21. And in the States as an adult, it's very hard to get 
an autistic diagnosis when you're an adult. They usually only offer it for children in the United States. You have to really push for them to even like evaluate you because they don't see like a reason for you to have that. And so I really had to push for the fact that I felt like something was going on and it was affecting my ability to work and social life. And so I was able to get the autist diagnosis when I was 21. I was easily diagnosed at 18 with that, that became, that came before being diagnosed with autism. And yeah, that's kind of how the diagnosis came about. I kept looking at like more like mood disorders, like depression or like bipolar and kept trying to maybe figure out what was causing some of my meltdowns. And I never felt like I fit in a specific box. Nothing ever was quite like, oh yes, that's exactly what I'm experiencing. So once I was diagnosed with autism, it it literally changed my life because then I understood why I felt certain ways or what was actually happening while I was you know, why am I feeling like there's electrical shocks going through my body right now because of this one thing? And so it was a lot easier to understand myself. Diagnosed at Jivana, was learning as a parent about autism and then I helped to get diagnosed with autism yourself. And which is quite highly common for autistic women, especially when you think in a yard like a mood disorder, bipolar or depression because they can be commonly misunderstood as being autistic and highly misdiagnosed because when you were diagnosed, they assumed that you just didn't have no representation of affected women and girls. So when you got diagnosed, what were the things that you thought you like realised that's been autistic? What were the traits that affected you? And in the moment you got diagnosed, what was it like then looking back on your earlier life then and thinking that, yeah, these things happened because I was autistic? Yeah, the the first most prominent thing was that I used a pacifier for most of my childhood. And I'm so lucky to have a mother that didn't shame me for using it. And so I had it until I was around 10 years old. It was a comfort thing, a focus thing. It was my stim, but we didn't know that. (laughs) My mom just, you know, allowed me to be me, but there was a lot of shame that came from other adults and other kids. And so I stopped using it when I was 10, but I still, I then struggled with that same oral stim in bad ways, like chewing my my nails, chewing my lips, like my tongue, my cheeks to the point that they would bleed, picking up bad habits like smoking cigarettes, like anything that was because I had this oral stim, just that I needed to feel comfort and focus. And so that's a very minor one. But one of the biggest things was just sensory meltdown. I didn't know anything about sensory and how you can feel overloaded by it or sensitive to it or seek it in other ways. And as a child, again, I was so lucky to have a mom that would just allow me to be me and wouldn't punish me. But I would have points where the birthday party would be too much. And I didn't know that it was because of the kids running around and screaming and too many people talking to me. And so I would 
have meltdowns where I would just it, like that's how I can describe it is it feels like electrical shocks going through my entire body but the other kids thought that I was being angry that I was kicking things or throwing myself on the floor because I was angry or I was mean and I would just kind of explode and have a meltdown and have to be taken home as a child couldn't have sleepovers because you know my social battery would run low I'd have a meltdown I'd have to go home. The other parents would call my mom. So those are things often I experienced in so many different ways. Grocery shopping, grocery shopping, going to the store, (laughs) birthday parties, playing with friends. So getting ready for school, the, the, if something didn't feel right in my clothes, I would take it off and I'd have to change. And then the clothes coming off and coming back on, it would be so much sensory that it'd be a meltdown again. And so those would be the things that I experienced as a child. As an adult, I was very much experiencing the same thing. But once you become an adult, I was trying to reason, like have a reason for it with other people. And so like with adults, like trying to explain it. So I didn't just seem like I had issues or you know, people would judge me. So oftentimes, I would almost find like a reason that it like, say I'm in a store and we're shopping and I I, it's the lights and the, the music in the store and the people is too much for me, I would have a meltdown, but I would make it about well, I just can't find the size in this shirt that I want. And so that's why I'm upset. And so it was causing issues, you know, with friends, with my partner. And the other thing that I quickly noticed was so different as an adult is I love to perform. I love to dance on stage. I like to act. I like to sing, DJ. Obviously, I I shine in that aspect because everything is choreographed. Everything is thought about. I know exactly what I'm doing. And I'm not surrounded by people. Everyone's looking at me, but I'm not having to speak to people or like, I don't know. I just, I know exactly what's happening. And I, for so long was like, why is that? Why can I not go to you know, a small baby shower and talk to people. And I feel so anxious about that, but I can go on stage and I can sing this song and I feel no anxiety. I'm great. I'm, I'm happy. In a way, you would think that if there was more awareness of what ought to be at the time you were as a child and, you know, be more understanding of how it can present, then I would assume that you could have got diagnosed a lot earlier than what you could, because I guess maybe like your school or family may have just thought, so you are having panic attacks, anxiety, stuff like that, was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. I was often, it, it, it was always like, oh, I just have anxiety. I would always say that because that's the only thing I could attribute it to. And I it because I didn't know, I was just constantly having these issues but because I know now I know exactly what I need once I feel that way or what is happening or what I need to do also ways to prevent it if you know obviously I I go out often because I am a DJ I'm in that nightlife scene I know exactly what I need to make sure that you know the lights coming from the booth is not too much or what I need to do for 
you know, the music and the people not becoming too much. Um, my partner is really great because he carries a lot of the social conversation for me when people kind of come up to us and he really helps with being able to move me to spaces so that I can have breaks or kind of, you know, enjoy the atmosphere without having um, too many people talking to me or crowding me. So all of that really helps. So yeah, it just, it makes for an easier life just because I know. And yeah, when I didn't, it was constant, constant panic attacks, meltdowns. I feel like you wasn't able to be exposed to what the reasons behind James. When you young, when your parents saw you as a younger child and people within your school then, if they didn't know much about what could be the causations of your reactions to environmental sensory things, that it's because like certain things are too bright, it's the wrong textures and all that, then it can look a lot like anxiety. When I look look at my young younger self, some of that what well, learn to know about sensory overload and downs. Um, a lot of my panic attacks I would add be a symptomatic of my autistic experience. You grew up in a family that stood your needs without necessarily having a diagnosis for you at that young age. That they understood that sometimes you get a bit like overwhelmed and sometimes sensitive or like seen as anxious, whereas the outside world might be seen you as maybe aggressive in the mountains and look at you wrongly when you were younger. You grew up in an environment where you could comfortably use a pacifier beyond the age of what people socially expect of somebody to use that. Understanding a lot about that stigma can help with and mask and autism and understand did not whether you got a diagnosis or not. Yeah, it's true. I I did grow up in that environment and it, it's interesting because my mom didn't know anything about what autism might look like in a female or ever think that I was autistic. But when I would have like I, I have this memory of me having a meltdown in the car and she was so patient with me. She never said it, it was at swim lessons and I didn't want to go in because I had a very long day at school. So I was in the car and she never was like, you have to go in, stop this right now. You're in trouble. She just kind of like, let me let it all out. And just was like, honey, stop putting your fingernails into your skin. Like, what can I do for you? And just very gracious without even a diagnosis. She was just amazing. I'm very, very blessed to have that. I did still have the struggles with the other adults telling my mom, you need to be harder on her. You need to punish her when she has meltdowns like that or something is wrong with her. And my mom's like, just letting her be herself and and figure it out. Yeah, as a parent to autistic children, you know, like you might have been exposed to some of that, you know, like that uh, negative parenting from like your other peers. Parents of like kids in the same school as you or like any, but like it might come across in such environments as you said, there is stigma that's still around it within certain groups and environments. When you got like your ADHD diagnosis at, I think you said about 16 and or 18. What, what led to that diagnosis then? 
My mom has ADHD and in the States, really, once you say, I have trouble focusing, they're like, oh, okay, we'll evaluate you for ADHD. It's like very easy to to get an evaluation. I will say like, I feel like a lot of my ADHD traits like overlap with my autistic traits, but the main things I have is like either hyper focusing on one thing, which again can also be a trait of autism, or not being able to multitask or focus on anything. I definitely tend to have more of like the hyperactive mind that while I should be in school listening to somebody speak, I'm thinking about 10, 15 other things. My mind is rapidly racing. And once I was put on ADHD medication, I did feel like the whole world or my brain was kind of like, boom, boom, this, this, this. As soon as I was on medication, it just helped me kind of go woof and like focus. Like my mind was quiet, but I was like more in control of my actions and processes to get things done. Uh, I really struggled with keeping a clean house, keep like in school, keeping a clean backpack, a clean locker, because my my mind was a mess. And so I couldn't prioritize. And so everything else became a mess. After the ADHD diagnosis, the main thing that opened up was just being able to learn how to prioritize daily tasks, executive function with brush my teeth, get dressed, do the dishes. All of those little tiny things suffered before the the ADHD diagnosis. I always say ADHD, autistic, and so many of the traits for me overlap. And so it's, it's hard for me to kind of pinpoint exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you got both diagnoses, they both exist in the same age. So if you've got the two diagnoses, it's like what is ADHD and autism kind of become when in the same age? Like college certain traits of some of the ADHD traits, and then you got the autism traits. Like they kind of bounce off and work off each other. Can you get rid of both? Yes, yeah. No, for sure. And the part of me is another thing thing that was unusual about me as a child, but I, I tend to hyper focus on one topic, my special interest. And I typically only want to be doing that thing <laughs> for days on end. I, I want to be consuming as much information about that topic. I like to talk to other people about that topic. And before I knew the diagnosis, I struggled with understanding that not everybody wants to talk about that right now. But if I something hands-on, I would not eat. I would forget to pee until I had to go so bad. I would forget to, or I wouldn't sleep. I would stay up, you know, more hours than normal. And so that, you know, some people say, you know, hyper-focus, obviously special interest is an autistic trait, but hyper-focus can also be an ADHD trait. It's also a reason I think females are always misdiagnosed as uh, bipolar or manic depression, because once they see that the woman staying up much later and not going to the bathroom or not eating, they think, oh, she has manic depression. But it's really just once our brain kind of latches onto something, sometimes it's it's just all we can do. What you said about like 
uh, women. It's common to get misdiagnosed with like stuff like manic depression, like stuff like that with sleep and leading to hyperfocus, like like lack of sleep mm-hmm. tends to look like. It's something that also that if you don't often ask for the context of why are the reasons you hate you like losing out on sleep. Autistic people are quite literal thinkers and there might be a reason that you have to do certain things then that if there's lack of being able to give it the space to explain yourself and given the space to actually tell tell you what that looked like, then it can lead to quite a lot of misdiagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, I, for sure, like not not being able to to fully explain and in the states to the medical system they just have boxes that they check so if you check a few of those boxes they go oh this must be it and they don't really do any in my opinion of what i've experienced but i don't feel like they they do a super deep dive and so a lot of times we are kind of left to do it ourselves and then we have to bring our case to be like i know that you said that i I'm experiencing this, but I'm also experiencing this and this. Yeah, you really have to push to fully explain yourself. You children got diagnosed with autism, and you know, like you were saying earlier about like how you have to fight to like get young diagnosed. Then, what was like for them getting diagnosed, and what are the things that you noticed that you needed to get a diagnosis in yourself, and from like at the time of getting diagnosis at 21, what what you find was like the important sign of getting diagnosis for yourself and what you think would have what would have been like if you hadn't been able to get di- diagnosis when you did? Yeah, well it it's there's a lot of there's a lot more information online now about autism and and especially on social media it's becoming a trend almost for women in particular to speak out about what it's like to be autistic so I was doing a lot of general research by medical documents looking at things about my children but through that I discovered some females talking about them being autistic and I I definitely related more with what they were saying versus some just, you know, black and white paper that I was reading. And so that's really what pushed me to even, you know, look into and you know I didn't go to my psychiatrist and because I was currently seeing one for ADHD and anxiety and I didn't go to them and be like I want an autism evaluation can you please give me one I started talking to them and I was like hey I've been feeling like I haven't been fitting into these boxes I've been reading more about you know autism and I think that maybe I could be And so they were talking to me about it. Well, what makes you feel that way? And they straight up said, well, it sounds like you definitely could be, but we don't do adult diagnoses in the States. You will have to push for that if you think you are. And I was like, well, you just said that you think I could be. And, and she was like, I know, but this is just how it works. And so I had to be like, okay, well, you know, I want to push for evaluation. Then I, I would like to do that. And she was like, okay, well, best of luck to you. I will, I will help you do that in any way I can. And 
So that's, yeah, that's kind of how the conversation went. I, I think today, if I didn't have that diagnosis, I would struggle with friendships because before diagnosis, it was always me offending people when I didn't mean to, or friends thinking that my sensory meltdown was about them, that I was you know, not stable, had a lot of issues. And, and so I think I would struggle with relationships. I think I've actually made so many more friends in my adult life because I'm able to meet people and I have no fear of telling them that I'm autistic and I feel more supported that way. And I feel like I don't have to mask as much. I'm allowed to be myself more because they know exactly why, you know, things might be going on where before the diagnosis, I had to mask because if something came out, they would question my emotional stability. It's, I'll say that if, like, before we got, like, they've had the diagnosis, then with people the question and emotional stability, then it, it just shows that how things can be quite difficult for women or anybody, really, who don't have that diagnosis to be, like, with that lens, your psychiatrist says that they don't really diagnose autistic adults in the state, I guess, in, in the United States, I guess. You thought, well, how do you get a diagnosis from that? It must have been quite a troubling thing to think of, like, what is the route to getting a diagnosis as an adult then? Because I think then, you know, like, getting told that, like to somebody else, maybe it could have looked like a thing that might make them hopeless and might not make them want to try to find a way of getting any diagnosis or any recognition for being autistic that could lead to a lot more support. Yeah, there's definitely, we almost feel like it's like social inequality because if you have, they say in the States, if you have better insurance and you have more money, then you're more likely to get a diagnosis because you you can push for more things. More things will be covered. If you have state insurance, you're probably out of luck. <laughs> and it's a reason why a lot of people for adults, especially recognize self-diagnosis for autism, because if you you know, if you're looking at all the boxes and you are checking all of the boxes and you're saying, I'm having all of these experiences, a lot of people don't want people to not feel supported in that way. If they're saying, I am this, but I can't, I can't go through that process. My advice to any adult that wants to go through the process is think about how, how the diagnosis could help you. If you just need to know the reasons why something is happening, because that will help you work through things, then as an adult, I think it is okay to self-diagnose yourself and kind of deep dive through that and see if you feel like this is a sensory meltdown when these things are happening, then look into the ways to help that. And if those things help you, then there you go. That's your pathway. My biggest Thing was I was working uh, at a bank and I wanted I wanted support and different things to help me at work while I was at the bank I was having some issues with a manager and you know specific things and the bank was coming down hard on me for doing things a specific way but I was telling them this is how I make sure that my my drawer is 
you know, works for me, like with my hands and like the whole process of, you know, counting my money properly. And they were saying, well, that's not corporate. That's not how we do it. There was just, there was a lot of things. And I, I had, you know, like support with my type one diabetes disability. Cause I had that as a diagnosis. So I had support there, but not on other things. And I was also going to say, if you are on the road to getting a diagnosis as an adult and you're going through this process, the best thing you can do is make a list of exactly how get it like exactly how things are affecting your life. So instead of just, you know, being like for ADHD, if you're like, oh, I just can't focus, don't say that. You have to come in with, I can't focus. I can't prioritize. I don't have executive function. And so because of that, my car is filled with trash. My dishes are not getting done. That is how it's affecting me. And you could do the same thing, you know, with sensory. You have to have those hard examples of how exactly the diagnosis would help and and the negative impact not knowing or not having support or not having therapy is having on you. So that's my advice. Yeah. Because like I think from what you like what you're saying and what I understand about, you know, the importance of self-diagnosing and also the importance of diagnosing in a way that everyone should be able to self-diagnose and in an ideal world it would be great if that you'd just be able to self-diagnose and have that recognised and be able to access to support as standard but for more I think for Martin, mostly is the reasons why people may risk to get a diagnosis is a lot of the time is like for the economical reasons of like getting support and work, you know, access to getting those help and help stuff they need to help and work. And if there's anything that they may need from like in terms of a medical reasons, like getting, I guess, income support or Let's support to therapy is an essential thing of our thing we need. If you can make your life work without a diagnosis, to say that working out different things that may help yourself, that make you less anxious, less likely to be sensory overwhelmed by the bright lights and all that, that you can manage the way off not getting a diagnosis and making life work for you. Yeah. Yeah, no, it for sure. And the other option that they they were telling me when I was pushing for the diagnosis is they were like, you know, we can evaluate for other things that, you know, may be issues and then treat those on their own. So maybe anxiety, uh, OCD, ADHD, or just uh, just sensory processing disorder. You know, if that is easier, somebody can you know, know that they are most likely autistic, self-diagnose and help help them find support and learn about themselves. But then the states, at least for the medical system, get that diagnosis for OCD or any or any little thing that is also coupled to kind of help with, you know, therapy support, if that's what's necessary. Going back to when you were saying about how it can, can be different from you know, like women, you know, autistic women, as we say, like, and until you think some of the information you've received to be diagnosed and understanding fully what autism is, as I said, I'm reading a lot of papers, like, that's not where you can understand the experience of 
autism has especially led Fintum kind of stand own diagnosis criteria of autism in terms of when it looks a lot more about males. Reading a lot more personal accounts does help answer more social elements of it. But you said that when you was in school, you had a friend who is also autistic. So what was it like then when when you was younger and had a friend who was autistic? What do you understand about autism then? And what did you understand from them about autism? Yeah, he was actually uh, my neighbor. And my mom and his mom were always like, wow, they play so well together. Sometimes he has issues with other kids. I do remember as a child, something that we would do is parallel play. So he would kind of play with whatever he was doing and I would do what I was doing, but we were happy doing our own things together. It's it's really hard because it it gave me a, a tainted outlook almost on what autism was because I never saw uh, anything wrong with him. He was a, a great friend but I was constantly told by other people that he had behavioral issues. And as a child, I just kept hearing behavioral issues, behavioral issues. And so I think before I knew anything about autism, that's really what I thought it was, was just behavioral issues. I didn't know anything past that. The other thing was, is I I kind of remember there was like a picture painted that maybe he fully wasn't able to like do things for himself. And so that was also something that was kind of in my head before I knew anything about it. And then I remember as a teenager and as an adult watching him go through school and go through college and get a degree and become a great person. And I was like, wow, that's so great. Because as a child, I didn't think that was possible. And then once I started actually understanding what autism was, because I literally did not, I had no, no idea. I was like, oh, this explains so much about my friend. All these other adults had a very old school, different way of looking at being neurodivergent and put me at ease that I was like, so how I felt about my friend was the true outlook and picture of him, not how these other adults were painting him because of behavioural issues. A lot years ago, like uh, even still today, that there's still a lot of negative perception around autistic people, you know, like as well with ADHD, because I think still is, there's that view of ADHD being like just behavioural issues when it's a lot more complex than that. If you expose that from a young age, just like the way you do society view of if you hear people from like a neighbours or fucking, then like stuff like that does impair your judgment and makes you a bit more prejudging of autistic people and what autism or ADHD is. You've got autistic children now. You was able to look at back as child of an example of being autistic then. So what are the things that you learned from your own children about being autistic and the world thing of being autistic for themselves? Yeah, well, it is for sure a spectrum because both my children are very, very different. And it's It also made me learn a lot about how it, it does portray differently in, in boys versus girls. As a baby, when we first started seeing some things with my son, he would 
bang his head against his uh, crib or the wall. And that's something that my mom said I, I never did when I was uh, young or my other son would spin something that I didn't necessarily do as a child. And so those were some signs that we started seeing. And I have, so I have one that is sensory avoider in most aspects. And then I have another one who is a sensory seeker in all aspects. <laughs> and he's overly social, hard eye contact. My other one to most other people appear, he's not nonverbal, but he doesn't like to speak to people who are not immediate family. So he struggles with a lot of that. So they're, they're just completely different. And so I think what I learned from my children is that in a way we are experience experiencing things in the same way, uh, but the way that we act I shouldn't say experiencing them in the same way because we do experiencing them experience them differently, obviously with sensory and stuff, but we yeah. we share the same struggles. However, it looks different on different people. And so I think that's where you don't act autistic or you don't seem autistic to me comes from because it is a, is a spectrum. And so, but it's so apparent to me and both my kids, but it's just in such a, a different way. And it's interesting because they are both, part of me and I share little bits of the same uh, struggles and the same cool parts about being autistic with um, both of them. So I think that's interesting too. Yeah, because it's like no two people are the same. It's a spectrum and the autistic people are mentally so different from yourselves. And he Mm -hmm. said that you see a lot of the things in them like you see in yourself. So what are the things in them that you see in seeing yourself my son jackson has that extreme hyper focus special interest part of me where he gets kind of stuck on something that he loves and he it's all of him it's all day all the time will literally be laying down at night to go to bed and he's still talking to I'm like okay I love you good night and he's like okay I love you too good night but mom and then he starts talking about whatever is going on and I was I still am very much that way where my my special interest is everything and he does I don't do this as much now because I understand exactly what's going on and I have a lot of practices that I do in my head when speaking to people to kind of help this along. But as a child and as a teenager, I would dominate the conversation about what I was, because my brain was just like about what I was thinking about. And so I would often miss the the cues from other people that they don't want to, or they're trying to end the conversation or they're not wanting to talk about that. So my son at seven still struggles with that, but I, I believe that with age and with understanding that that does get better and and you do learn how to you know have that that conversation where you don't totally dominate so that's what I I see in him and then my younger son he has just you know very similar like sensory sensitivities I see a lot of the same activities as a child that I would go through I, I think I already mentioned it changing of clothes if I have to change my clothes or once something that I put on is uncomfortable, 
that is extremely hard for me. And it's something I see with him on the daily that he'll be so excited to go somewhere. We're so excited. But once we put on the wrong shirt or the wrong pants or whatnot, and he has to try and change, then we're not going anymore. So those are the things that I see in both of them that are kind of like me. Like you hyper focus on special interests. Well, they keep special or focused interests that you have. So right now, this has a special interest for most of my life, but just in the last few months, my interest has peaked. So I've been a little bit more into it, but dance in general. So I love watching a ballroom dance, ballet. Obviously, I'm a shuffle dancer, so shuffling hip hop. I've just been very into the history of it. I like watching dance music videos, studying the movements, highly interested in dance. And so in a way that takes up time because I'm wanting to choreograph more dances for me or learn new movements. Anytime I have a special interest that I can also have an activity to do as part of that interest, it tends to take up way more of my time (laughs) than if it's just something more like I've my whole life, I've loved anything Disney. But you know, watching Disney movies. And I like to learn about Disney. So like all of the history of Disneyland and all of the parks and all of the attractions that it would tend to take up less of my time when that was my focus, because there wasn't, it was a lot of like watching and learning versus activities. So with dance and watching, learning, taking in information and then doing and creating. And so it, it becomes this whole whole giant thing yeah. but I the I would say so Disney Disney right now it's dance and then this one is not currently peaked but has always been a special interest and I can talk anyone's ear off about it for like ever <laughs> but I love Alice in Wonderland I know everything about the writer uh, Lewis Carroll, his real name is Charles Dodgson. I'll try not to get too much into it, but that's a very big special interest of mine. So not currently peaked, but yeah, any anytime someone wants to talk to me about that, I I will go. So about dance, it'd be more easy to take because it's like an activity and it's stimming, spinning, a lot of energy and it's good way to exercise some energy out of the have built in review. And because like you say, yeah, hyperactive person and then it seems like a great way for you to get that. So how do you get it into it down? Yeah, so I actually danced most of my life, but I struggled always finding that one dance that I could hone in on because I loved all dance. And so as a child, my mom would struggle because I'd be like, I want to do tap. Now I want to do ballet. Now I want to do hip hop. So I did all sorts of classes growing up, always danced in high school. I did musical theater. So lots of jazz and ballet and tap. And then how I got into shuffling was actually in 2011, I was in high school. I was at my friend's house and she had an older sister and they were all ravers and they were listening to, you know, like, EDM electronic dance music and at the time I didn't listen to any of that so I was like oh this is like this is interesting I kind of like this I liked the the vibration of it and the kind of like the repetitive beats and 
I w- I literally said, I was like, how do you dance to this? And she's like, oh, let me show you. So she showed me like a very basic move. I tried to do it. I think I was 14 and I was like, this is too hard. <laughs> so I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, really push it. And then when I was visiting my cousins and they were listening to EDM and they were all shuffling and I was watching them all and I was like, wow, my whole family can do this dance. I, I really want to to learn. So they kind of started teaching me some basic moves. And from there, I took off into watching anything I could find on the internet about it, reading about it, watching people's movements. And I just kind of taught myself. And my favorite part about it, when you hear like the drop in the music, it makes me excited. I love to hear that drop. And kind of makes you just like want to I don't know like shake your body shake your hands like it's just like this mm, it feels really great and so kind of shuffling it there's a lot of like power in your body as you're moving your feet to the ground and it was just a great way for me to kind of take that feeling that I was feeling when the music drops and to be able to do something where people are like wow that's cool that looks really great versus sometimes people would be like, wow, what are you doing? Like, are you okay? As I'm like freaking out because the, you know, the sound and the feeling of the drop. So yeah, it's a great way to expel that energy. You go from like interested in the EDM dance in the scene and you're getting into that type of culture. And how do you go from listening to actually went in to try to be behind the decks and start mixing and creating music with it so when was like the first time you got behind a dj deck and started mixing when i was 14 i shuffling put it down but i started listening to edm then met my partner when i was 18 and he was very much into it and so that kind of piqued my interest in it and we started to go to raves together and he has a lot of friends that are djs and so because I was into my 20s, I was getting into the community for shuffling. We were around a lot of DJs. There was always somebody DJing at, you know, the park for us to shuffle to, or we started going to more shows. And it was actually my partner that was like, hey, I think I want to invest in a, you know, a deck to to learn how to DJ. You know, would you support me in that? Can I put the money into it? And I said, Yeah, I, I would absolutely support you in it. You know, let's do it. And so he bought the the deck, and it sat on our table for like three months and collected dust while nobody touched it. And so I was like, Well, if he's not going to use it, then I'm going to use it. And oh my gosh, once I hopped on that and realized all the things that I could do with it, it was, yeah, one giant dopamine rush. And so I had only been using it for maybe two weeks when uh, I sent a friend of mine, I was like, hey, will you listen to this like little piece that I, I did I you know I'm still learning um and they were like hey this sounds really good would you like to perform at the park in a week and I was like yeah I would well I'd only been DJing for like two weeks so I spent that entire week trying to learn how to throw together my first set but that's how I started and and once I played at that park it just seemed like kind of the the gigs started coming to me and I, I was just getting experience from 
you know, putting together the sets and, and playing live. Um, I will say the first time I ever DJed at a club where there was lots of people, I almost quit DJing because the, like the thought of just all of the, the pressure and all of the people there looking at me, I was like, I don't know if I could do this. And so I like almost on the way there, I told myself, I'm like, I'm going to play this, this club gig. And then I'm never going to do this again, because I don't like how this makes me feel. And as soon as I went up there and I played the set, I was like, oh, I'm doing this for the rest of my life. This is great. <laughs> it's a place that, like, a lot of people might not think that, oh, being autistic, and people might think that it's a place that it can be quite overwhelming for autistic people. But I would still find that you felt comfortable in exploring that beef culture, going into beef and clubbing. And what's the things that helped you cope? When I do go to clubs, if I'm a DJing, I usually get there 45 minutes before my set. And so I really just kind of get comfortable, get water, play my set, and then leave. I, I even don't do super well in the club space. I do go sometimes, but if the event is six hours long, I'll go for one to two hours. The things that I personally bring is I will bring my pacifier out even to the club space. There's been times that I have forgot. I leave my pacifiers everywhere. I'm constantly buying new ones, always. So there's been times I've forgotten them. And then often I will do like lollipop or a chewing gum, just something to keep me focused. I always bring sunglasses. I prefer the just like the darkest ones you can get. For me, the light does not bother me if it's not shining directly in my face. But yeah. if I can't kind of get away from that, I, I will wear the sunglasses. Even for some people, though, I know that the sunglasses won't be enough. And so I always say that when you're going somewhere, try to understand the space and what it looks like. There's I, I know all of the places where I go in Seattle very specifically. And so I know the places where I'm not going to be able to get away from all of the lights and the the places that I can go that I have an area where I can be where they're not directly in my face. I I personally like loud music because I like vibration, but I have to have earplugs in. Um, it can't just be like raw. Um, and then I just suggest for people that are overly sound sensitive, if you do earplugs in your ears and then you put like earmuffs or something just like another covering above that really helps and for me I can sometimes almost barely barely hear the music but I can still hear if somebody needs to talk to me so those are some of the things um, I do to help in the club scene again I don't typically the 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 I can't the overcrowding is very hard for me yeah where where I always suggest if somebody who is a neurodivergent and sensory sensitive that wants to go experience the rave scene is festivals especially outdoor festivals because there's a lot more ways to enjoy it where you're not dealing with lights and too much sound and overcrowding. I don't even attend that many festivals, especially with type 1 diabetes and being autistic. There's a lot of planning that goes into it. I do 
again, this becomes a money issue, but I prefer to have a VIP pass because those are always less crowded areas where I can still see if I'm why I like outdoor festivals though, is because most of them, there is a place that you can lay a blanket and you can sit down. Like there's been times where I have, I always like having something soft and it makes me feel better, but I have a backpack that is a stuffed animal. And so sometimes for me to enjoy it, I just kind of hold my stuffed animal. I have my pacifier, I have this, and I can enjoy the music, the experience. So yeah, I always recommend, you know, know where you're going and make sure somebody's with you to help support you and knows what you might need. My partner's great at that bring what you need, earplugs, you know, come prepared, sunglasses, pacifier, whatever you need. And uh, yeah, outdoor, outdoor festivals help. Yeah, I was just saying that, yeah, I can imagine how outdoor festivals would help a lot more than, you know, like it being inside the club, because these then got the out open space where, you know, like the sound isn't contained in like the four walls and top isn't, you know, like gets to, you know, sweaty and crowded because at least then we felt like festival even though it's quite crowded then you can at least find a way of managing to find like a quieter area and walk away if needs to be and easier to be to find an exit route and you know the way that you can I guess can reach security people a lot better and sometimes a lot more festivals are adding you know a lot more places for you if like you're of century, it seems, you know, there's a lot more looking into having, you know, certain areas where you can go and just take a five if you need to be. Exactly. It's very important. And, like, I found that, like, for the first time, like, this year, I went to a festival myself. It's, it's quite handy that they, like, they started doing when in my town now. And that, like I said, that taking, like, your defenders does help because... You know, like stuff like loud noise can be quite a lot, especially like the outcry, a couple of different stages quite close together, heavy bass, you know, it does help to dampen the sound down mm-hmm. then. And so then, it must, unlike for when you said that, you know, like, you know, you know, when you like a, you know, DJing and all that and going to festivals, it seems like a space where you can really. And mask and you know, like feeling quite liberated and publicly expressing yourself and you know, like your artistic, authentic self, and you know, like using stuff like you know, adult size pacifiers in festivals, using adult pacifiers again, being in public about it. Oh, do you find that? confidence and do you feel like there's still a lot of sticks yeah I when I first started DJing I would I didn't have the pacifier and and something I I was using it in my personal time I actually had started using it again kind of behind closed doors when I had my kids Um, and so I was using it without really anyone knowing. And when I was DJing, I would be so excited to see the pictures and the videos of me DJing and the videos. I looked very focused. I was usually looking down at the decks. I wasn't really interacting with anybody or, you know, kind of dancing about. And my mouth always looked like this, where I had like 
my lips pinched together. I wasn't smiling. And it's because I was chewing heavily on my lips. And I was like, oh, I want to be able to give, not be so focused and give more of that performance value. And so I started one show. I was like, oh, like I look like a raver with a pacifier trying to console myself about it. And I was just like telling people like, oh, it's just part of my outfit. And I did a, I I played at a festival in a campground and somebody took a video of me and I was, I had my pacifier and I was having a blast. Like you could just see, I was so comfortable with all of these strangers around me. I was enjoying myself. And somebody afterwards had asked me, why the pacifier they're used in rave culture but not for sensory issues they're often attributed to drug use it has nothing to do with drug use I actually use it for stimming and then I explained to her what stimming meant and she was like I think that's really cool actually you should tell more people that And so I took that video of me and I put it on TikTok and I just kind of like was venting I I think I made the video in like less than a minute. I was just writing text of like yeah. telling my story of the pacifier my whole life and how it's helped me. And it blew up on TikTok. I had over a million views and people, it was nothing but positive comments though. Nothing was negative. And it, everybody was relating to my story and was telling me like, this is amazing. This made me feel more comfortable. This made me feel this, this made me feel that. And so honestly, that is what helped me. It took other people to tell me this is okay. I feel the same for me to have the confidence to break the stigma. And still to this day, I sometimes struggle going to maybe the grocery store and using it. Like I I still will struggle with that confidence of is everyone going to look at me if I have this in my mouth while I'm with my kids? Like, is are they going to look at me funny? So I do struggle with that confidence. I think on my the most confidence I have about like, you know, ignoring the stigma about it is, you know, going out, going to festivals, being on social media, being with around my friends or at home. But I do still think there's a huge stigma around using it. And But I did have one time a negative comment on TikTok where somebody told me that I was making autistic people look like infantile by saying that to use stuffies or pacifiers. And so I kind of was like, that is the stigma. But that's what I'm trying to break is that adults can use that. And it's not infantile. Everybody can use this because it's comforting. Society has made it infantile and only children and only babies use these when they are tools for so many people to feel comfortable and to feel okay and to focus and to stim in a healthy way because there's so many ways that you could yeah. stim that hurt you i think that's why there's a lot of fear when it comes to like being your authentic self and especially doing it in public and and masking in public with all that stigma and ableism, infantilized, look, being autistic and having views and pacifiers, that can be be more stigmatizing and uncomfortable for us to publicly do it. And like, and I, like seeing your videos help also like helped myself and having like so on social media themselves and without you know like too much fear and within confidence because it's like 
with like that confidence and without being able to express ourselves with like joy and as I say that when you seem dancing with it, you're having a good time and enjoying yourself publicly expressing this. And that's what changes like negative perceptions around stuff like this. Because yeah. like for myself, like I thought of using one in, in my late teens, but like I had like ideas of London teams from before, but like sometimes I use it like whenever in my bedroom, just like when I grind in my teeth and like I found it's stigmatized and I think like there's something that stigma would have to overcome to use in public and such stuff like that. But you know, stuff like that can be helpful. What was the reason that you went to use them again in now when you was an adult and what was it that like the idea that you thought something like that of your all stemmen? I think originally when I first was like yeah, that girl's right. I, I should tell people about it. I think it was more for me. And I don't think I realized that it would help so many other people. I think I was thinking about myself in the moment that I was like, I think it would make me feel more comfortable if I was able to tell people that I use a pacifier because I'm autistic, not just as part of rave culture. I think instead of just posting on my Facebook or posting on my story, I will just make a video on on TikTok. And then once so many people related, I was like, I just helped a lot of other people just like they're helping me. And it's so important for me to keep talking about it. And I, I think sometimes I do still get scared of the stigma. But I think that's why it's so important for me to keep talking about it. It's not just for other people, but to continuously work on me having the confidence to be myself. Because at the end of the day, I think a lot of people don't realize that stimming isn't just a a quirk or something interesting about you. To me, finding a healthy way to stim is literally self-care. It's taking care of yourself. Because I am... A healthier, better human when I'm able to stim in a safe way. And so I think that is something that I wish more maybe neurotypical people understood is how important the the stim was. And, and I have run into those issues with my son where he has verbal stims and I have to leave places because other adults will be like, you need to be quiet. You can't be making those noises here. You need to stop. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, but I have to leave because I have to go to a place where my son is okay, can be himself and can be okay because this is, you know, it's important to me. It is bad for yourself and more healthier if it comes from a way that you want to do it because you think it, it would make you feel safer, safer than happier. But when you like first wanted to buy an art and say to pacifier for yourself and start using it, what was the thought reason that you wanted to do that? And, you know, what went to do to use one again? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny, but so I had stopped when I was 10 out of shame. And when I was 19, I was pregnant with my first son and I got a bunch of pacifiers for the baby shower. But 19, this is before I knew I was autistic. And I was like sitting on the couch looking at these pacifiers, thinking to myself, should I throw them all away 
so that he doesn't have to deal with the same feeling of shame as I did if he gets attached to these? Or should I be like my mom and, and graciously allow him to have these? And and while I was thinking about that, I unwrapped one of them <laughs> and I stuck it in my mouth. And obviously it was an infant pacifier. It was not yeah. an adult. And I, I don't recommend anyone uses those. I recommend they, as an adult, to use adult-sized pacifiers. It's better for your teeth, your mouth, yeah. your jaw. But I immediately felt that feeling that I had felt when I was young, the safety, security, like just you know I don't it's it's so hard to explain how stimming feels but it was at that moment that I was like I'm going to give these to my son and if he attaches himself to it I'm going to be gracious like my mom and I'm also going to buy myself an adult pacifier and use it in my own space because I think I need this and I would use it very sparingly at first because I, I think in my head, I still didn't know I was autistic. So I I still felt the shame and, and especially stigma as an adult. So I didn't want anyone to know. And I was trying to not get too attached to it. And then it, it was definitely once I learned about being autistic and what a stim was and what was going on that I was then like, oh, no, this is something that's necessary. And that is when I, I started to really use an adult pacifier. Like, what, what, like what was the ones that your children would recommend for, for people to use if they wanted to try something like that? Yes. Um, so I have to look at my phone to see the brand. So when when I go to sh- when I play shows I use a, a flashing pacifier. It's not listed as an adult size pacifier, but it is not an infant one. I would still say that the nipple is not large enough for everyday use, but it's kind of fun for costumes and things like that. I have been questioned a few times about how the flashing lights don't bother me. If the pacifier is facing you, the lights are very bright. When the pacifier is in use, they're really reflecting out from you and you can't actually even tell when it's on sometimes. And so the the lights don't really bother me. But that's what I use for a show performance. It's called Glow FX, but I would not recommend it for daily use. It's not small, but it's yeah. definitely not large enough. And then let me quickly find the one the adult and i get them on amazon it says classic adult sized pacifiers this is what oh it's all blurred that's what they look like though (laughs) but they're they're just i don't know i like the i don't know what you call it but like the the back side and like the size of it around my mouth you also have to recognize everybody's mouths are different I'm yeah. I'm a very petite person. I have a smaller jaw, jaw, smaller teeth. And so sometimes it is a little bit trial and error when you're going through the adult size pacifiers just to find one that fits your mouth well, that feels comfortable. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely yeah. that. It definitely is different person. For me, like I do like to try the different ones and like I find that there's ones by there, like company called Pacifier Addicts are quite good because like they try the uh, size 10 and not quite good for bigger size and bigger mouth because like being more comforting and a bit bigger sealed stuff like that you know is quite helpful and stuff like that so as yeah it's also better to try to 
find what's best and model size. On your social media, you also referenced that before, like when you were in the clubbing experience, you also had, you know, like some negative reception about it. So how do you feel if, if like, somebody's had a negative comment, how have you been able to counteract that and, you know, deal with, I guess, people's judgment around it? Yeah, if it's a negative comment that I feel like is negative for no reason or it's just mean, I typically don't respond to them and I just ignore them. Sometimes, though, I do get comments that I feel like are worth talking about. So it may be a perspective that I think is common, like a common stigma that I think if I responded to it, it would be a good conversation for people to chime in on or kind of like to take their thought and not be like, hey, you're wrong, but kind of be like, what if you thought about it like this? And so I really only respond if I feel like I can add value to the autistic community by responding to a negative comment. But there's a lot of ones that are just kind of like they're trolls, like they're just plain mean. And and I just ignore those ones. Yeah. And from what I said when you was like young yourself now, like 19 when you like started using money. I think from that when you said about like you was able to find your coping mechanisms, easily found ways of like stimming and expressing yourself if it's obviously able to have like a childhood where you quite accepted for your autistic traits even though you didn't have the diagnosis. It seems like you were in much more for like safer environment and had a you know greater space to feel likely that you could and mask yourself and that where I guess where you know a lot of women and girls when you read up about the experiences they have with trauma and stuff like that. That mm-hmm. was not part of me, but you know, like that because you could find your way expressing yourself then you could have to be a bad experience if you get I mean. Yeah, yeah. I definitely learned how to mask it's obviously why the the social battery would quickly run low but I didn't have to mask around my parents at all but I even our closest family friends in my head I can recall the comments of why does she do that why is she that way like you need to fix that something's wrong with her that's not normal and so all of those comments are really how you quickly learn to mask and it's funny as an adult because now I quickly realize once I'm masking like as soon as I am it almost like causes a little bit of anxiety because I'm like oh I'm I'm masking right now am I doing it okay (laughs) am I oh no now I'm like hyper aware that I'm doing it so and and I think a lot of times now because I tell everyone I'm autistic I I feel less of a need to mask it's usually going into you know like maybe a job interview where they don't know off the bat that I am and immediately I'm like oh I'm asking am I doing it all right should I just tell them I'm autistic so I don't have to mask is that gonna hurt things is that gonna affect things yeah yeah it's not pretty well and you know like from that of like you know having good parents and you know like having quite a nice you know family where you know like you felt that you supported and supported and even and you could be like yourself 
and you know didn't have like many like you know problems in the household you know as some people face but yeah. also like having autistic children yourself and 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 understanding a lot more about your autism and your children's autism so for parents of autistic children or like who are suspected children make being neurodivergent what are the advice would you give parents of autistic children so my my biggest advice is that we want them to be able to take care of themselves and to be the happiest healthy version of themselves that they are but that doesn't mean that we have to mold them into the block of a person that society would like us to mold them into because neurodivergent people don't we don't fit that mold and so you can cause more harm than good and i think choose your battles so if you know, there is something that is causing harm to your child, we need to figure out how to, you know, make that better in their life. But if there is something like they like to, you know, they're a small child and they like to watch the washing machine while the load is going, that was something I like to do and I still like to do it, (laughs) Uh, let them because that is not hurting anyone and that is what they want to do. Um, They're going to be different than you and you have to look at the parts that are different and make sure that you are um, creating a safe space for them wherever they go. And if they are going into, you know, a space where they are not welcome because of, you know, the basis of who they are and that part of them doesn't hurt anyone, then you don't go to that space. Yeah, just safety, making an autistic child feel safe and helping them understand why they are different. The cool things that are the cool things about being autistic, because there are so many, in my opinion, it can be like a superpower sometimes. You know, the disability really comes from society putting pressure on people to be a specific way. And that can cause much more disabling of a person than anything. And that's my opinion. Yeah. And like, as somebody, somebody, you know, yourself, you're, you know, a a DJ who's also a mother, you know, when women were health and always got our representation in the field of DJing and you know being a club DJ on a big stage DJ and it's not something that you know it's been t- typically male dominated and something that you know a lot of the space has been lacking the, the support that you would want as a man who has a child and you know is also autistic so well well it's like you know managing you know like the like every you know the dj life and also like a family life and also you know doing stuff like man's also your autistic century in that sort of it if you get what I mean yeah it it's it's a struggle for sure it's worth it but it, you know i i get overwhelmed very often and so when you when you have three autistic people in one house there can be competing access needs where one 
you know, because there is not loud music or sound going, he has to verbally stim very loud. The other one wants it very quiet. You know, I'm just trying to, you know, attend to the needs of both my children while also trying to do things to help me with, you know, sensory issues. So all of that on top of DJing, you know, I would say DJing actually fits nicely into our life because my one son really likes you know, working on sets with me and, and likes also working on the de- decks and hearing the music. And so oftentimes, you know, he will sit with me and do that while my other son will be with my partner. But yeah, it there's definitely go, like a lot of structure that goes into doing multiple things, you know, so making sure that the kids you know, go to school and are, you know, cared for while also, you know, working on social media or, you know, having different times set up every day to work on a a set by a specific date. So lots of scheduling in our life because there's a lot of different moving parts. Being autistic or ADHD, I mean, this, this can be an attribute for either. I thrive on a schedule. I have to know you know, when I'm doing something, how the day is going so that it can run smoothly. If I start off a day with no schedule, everything is extremely overwhelming and it's hard to, you know, prioritize to go from, you know, A to B to C and and have a productive day. So, yeah. And as I said, you know, like it does help having a schedule and all that stuff to, you know, manage the, like, the overall most so many different tasks that you may need to do in a day and just managing, like, all the different things, you know, being a parent and, you know, doing the DJ and stuff. And so what, like, how do you think, like, the, you know, how accessible do you think that DJing is for autistic and neurodivergent people and the the club uh, experience of, like DJing clubs and and what are the things that you would like to be able to see that improved yeah. to make sure that they are more disabled, you know, and also disabled women and my people of minority genders in yeah. the you know like industry. Yeah. I think that the club space and even the festival space could be more accessible by having more resources available specifically, you know, for neurodivergent people. I I played a show with a group called Peer Pressure and I really, really enjoyed it. The one of the founding members is autistic and they had a sensory room that not only was kind of away from the direct music at the space but also had different things just for you know like actual like sensory like things to play with but also just different things like headphones or whatever somebody needed to kind of be able to be in the club space and enjoy it while being a neurodivergent or having a sensory sensitivity. So I really liked playing that show and I I definitely want to see more of that. It's definitely lacking. And even with 
information about being autistic becoming more available and more people understanding it in today's age. A lot of times I find that, you know, somebody may be at a, you know, a club and be like, I have this issue. I'm aut- or say I'm autistic and somebody goes, Oh, that's, that's so cool. And, and you kind of feel like they're accepting of it. But the moment somebody may need help because of any issue that's going on, or they may need resources or support. Uh, it seems like there is some of that lacking from you know, clubs themselves and festivals themselves. When I give people advice on going to these places, it's usually what you're doing for yourself and having a support person to also help you because truly there needs to be, you know, more accessibility, more resources for disabled people in general to go to events of all disabilities. I even struggle with some things with type one diabetes that I shouldn't struggle with at festivals. So no, that's definitely something that there needs to be, you know, more change for. As far as being an autistic female DJ, I, I, I'm happy to have the success that I've had, but it's definitely, I see a male dominated scene and I do feel like that there is definitely like a lack of disabled people in the festival scene, especially. I would like to see way more representation, but I think how we get that is more people is the more that I post not just me but anybody who is a disabled or a person of color or a woman to post I am a DJ this is what I'm doing and putting their stuff out there can really help open up the scene I mean at the end of the day if somebody is you know a woman DJ or disabled or a person of color people need to put all of their support because if you think about it, the top people at these festivals, they are going to hire who they think people will buy tickets for. And so if you see somebody that, you know, will help diversify representation in this industry, support them the absolute best you can, because at the end of the day, that is how, you know, things will change. It starts with us, the fans. Yeah. Yeah, Because I said, um, I assume that if like a lot of more DJs speaking up, like well, you know, women and you know, people of minority genders, people of colour, yes, in yes. disabled people, it's you know, it's a very minority in the city, not but if like more speak up about it and use the platforms like yourself to can actually yes. increase the people who attend the festivals and get booked on the lists of people booking the festivals, and I will probably take a lot more years to get to the place. But, it, like, having these conversations at least could at least make people think, like, or thought at least some of the things they can start introducing to places to make things a bit more accessible for disabled festival goers to club goers, because a lot of things that for women, people of minority genders... LGBTQ to people of colour. There's a lot of things that need to be improved with festivals and stuff like that. And I think it's probably something that, as you know, like a DJ yourself, somebody's you know booking on booked up to play the festivals. Like it probably like has great impact if you yourself are like you are talking about it to actually put press on like 
for there to be more introduction, you know, of certain things for, you know, uh, disabled uh, festival goers. Because, like, sometimes, you know, like, you think of, you know, artists getting booked on to certain festivals, they can, you know, book, you know, like, a lot of the higher the bills can get more writers and, you know, like, certain things that they would run to accommodations for. And for to be able to answer that, you know, also that is the same for the festival goers, is something incredibly important because, as you say, that I can assume that you find it's a lot more easier to make things accessible as a performer, as to some, sometimes when you go as a, you know, a festival goer or somebody who's attending like a music concert and stuff like that. Yeah. Yes, agreed. It, there's a lot of change that needs to be happening, and especially people with platforms. Like it's very important if they have a large platform to speak. But something I want to see more of is, you know, I have so many great friends that are are trying to make changes in this industry, especially the, you know, the club scene and the festival scene. My friend Kamir, they are actively trying to make safer, more inclusive, more accessible spaces by, you know, holding, a, you know, more inclusive, accessible festivals and all sorts of things. They're actively trying to make a change, but they, you know, are a minority of gender. They are trans. And I would like to see more allies, people who are neurotypical, you know, who are like not in the community to have a little bit more support in the community uh, and support these groups. I think that is important as well um, for not just, you know, neurodivergent people to, you know, be speaking out about this, but the, the neurotypical people with platforms also to also support and to also speak. I think that helps um, tremendously to have those allies. Yeah, because that's the way that if like you get the support of people who are not in, from the community, those minority communities, that's when you can start to get, you know, like, booked into mainstream environments and actually have those competitions into mainstream environments that can make it a lot more easier to make a living from it because I know we're seeing that, you know, in the, the industry, especially for people with minority backgrounds who are more likely to be further down the bills of, like, certain festivals can be quite harder to you know, make the same income as other, you know, people from majority, you know, groups on, like, festivals. Yes, agreed. What are the type of music that you like to listen to and you like to play in festivals? What, like, the songs that you tend to have on your playlists? So the music I like to play at festivals and shows is uh, house music. I love bass house and big room house, electro house. Those are like my sub genres that I like to play. As far as as an artist, I'm also working on uh, producing music and releasing some sometime soon. And the the general genres would be house and some sub genres of house. But as far as like listening to music, anytime I go to a lot of house shows but I I love music so much 
that I really listen to every genre of music. So every subgenre of, you know, electronic dance, like a hardcore, hard style, dubstep, house music, trance. I really love them all. And then even non-EDM genres, I listen to especially at home because the environment can be chaotic with my kids. If I'm not actively like shuffling or dancing or working on sets, I tend to listen to more like I listen to like classical, instrumental, acoustic, folk music. A lot of that stuff is kind of the the music I enjoy uh, during the day to help just keep you know, a calm environment, which I think is interesting because I I think a lot of DJs mostly listen to EDM. Maybe some dubstep DJ you might listen to also metal because they have similar frequencies or are in line with each other. Yeah. And I, I just really love everything. There's like a time and a place in my life for every type of music. And I'm the same way about dance. I love all dance, shuffling and hip hop and ballroom and ballet are all so different but I I appreciate them all I'd say the song that I've been listening to a lot lately is yes this album it's called brightest lights by lane eight and it was released in 2020 and and it's more like a trance music but it's very like I don't know just kind of it creates like that calm uh, environment while still like it's still EDM so it still has like those vibrations and uh, my children enjoy it the whole house enjoys it so it's on repeat most of the time so there you go yeah yeah when you were saying about disabled people out there doing things in the industry so we're like what are the people that you would recommend Yeah, the uh, first one is SMU Productions. They are a company that is working on becoming a nonprofit, but they've been really amazing in the community and doing a lot of amazing things. Completely inclusive as far as people of color, gender, disabilities, really just trying to make the whole rave community safe inclusive and accessible so yeah they are a group that i highly recommend also peer pressure these are their instagram handles so yeah just peer p-e-e-r pressure they are also really big on creating safe inclusive spaces especially for a neurodivergent and then also one of my favorite things is that all of the djs on the bill that have to play for them um they go through a um sexual harassment uh nightlife seminar it's like a little class um that you do but it's really important that all of like the staff and the people playing focus on creating a safe nightlife experience because at the end of the day that is something that is very important especially in club spaces is you know what to do if you see sexual harassment how to you know keep other people you know safe in the the um, industries. So I would say they are another really good group to follow. Both of them are here right now, currently in Seattle, but I hope that they they grow and spread nationally or worldwide because yeah. they're two really amazing groups, but the change starts with us and then hopefully it, it grows. So yeah. those are two off the top of my head that I can recommend. It'll be great for people to follow and support them 
because as you say that, to make these things changes for groups like these to be supported longer they to make these changes. And I think just that anybody who is wanting to use their platform for anything. So if you want to make a change, like some of these groups that I've uh, recommended, or you just want to tell your own personal story, or if, you know, you are, you know, autistic and you want to be a DJ, but you don't know how to start, whatever you want to do, social media can feel scary, especially from the pressure of feeling like you need to quickly build a following or have thousands of people, you know, listen to you or for your post to blow up. But that's not important. Going viral is not important. If you have only a hundred people that see your video with whatever purpose it has, you only need one person to see it for it to, you know, spark change. Or for somebody to see your video and go, wow, I, I want to book you for a show. So just keep making that content because social media can be very powerful and it's not shameful or bad to not have views no matter what your purpose is you can use it as a tool to better yourself or help other people or or create change so that's yeah what i'd like yeah. to say and i always ask this like very, very briefly what what one thing really would like to see changed for neurodivergent neurod- and disabled people in society like, if you could pick one thing off the top of your head that you would like to see changed. Yeah. Ooh, I, there's, there's so many. <laughs> I think that I would like to see in school and work systems. And, and I know that this is changing and there are a slight, there are resources, but I would like it things like stimming or resources for you know how do i put this in a in a very so for example you know kids in class you know we're always told to take notes or to sit in our chair to be still different things like that it's not an inclusive learning environment for neurodivergent people and it's also not an inclusive work environment for neurodivergent people and i you know, wish that it was easier for a neurodivergent person to be in school or to have a job and to say, I need this to succeed and to be able to do my job or to be into school and to not have to go through so many hoops in order to get that approved. That it's, it can be just like, yes, you can have that if that is how you do your job or you can have that so that you can succeed in school because I still think they're is too much of a process. And as a child, if you have a parent supporting you, very great help. As an adult, when you are in a workspace, if they tell you, you can do that if you first fill out this paper, talk to this person, call this person, get this done, especially for an an ADHD autistic person, that is so many steps in order to get something done to support you. And if you don't have you know, a parent who is supporting you, it won't get done and you will struggle. So hopefully that was a very long explanation, but that is what I would like to see in a workplace in school and society. Um, So lastly, is there anything you want to promote or... Yeah, um, is at 
Lucky Light with an underscore at the end. My TikTok is one of my favorite platforms because I post the most about being autistic and type 1 diabetic and just disabled in general. And I feel like for resources, especially relating to, you know, being a DJ or going to festivals or clubs, there is some information and things that I've shared on there. My Instagram is the same at Lucky Light, just with three underscores. There is more, I would say, just in general, dance and DJ content on my Instagram. And also I have a SoundCloud, which is just Lucky Light. That's where all of my mixes are on for me DJing uh, to listen to my music. And then as I said, I am working on producing music, but I have a very busy life. So I don't have a date set, but I'm hoping that it's early 2024 that I have my own music released. And in Seattle here locally, I have a show on November 11th. I have been playing less or sorry, I'll I'll finish yeah. that statement. November 11th in Seattle, it's at Vu Lounge. And then I am the headliner, so I don't go on till later in the night. But you can get you can RSVP or get tickets on through the link that is in my Instagram bio. And from skin for DJ Lucky Light on coming on this week for the new Rainbowcast podcast. Me autistically talent. I hope you enjoyed this episode with DJ Lucky Light. You can find more about her on the episode description and more about this podcast at www.newrainbowproject.com where you can find out where to read, watch and listen to the podcast. Many more resources and extra bits. Promise I did with the new Rainbow Project. And as I said, you know, like if you also into making stuff to think percent and discount with passive addicts from customers, I recommend you got until the end of this year on the, on the 31st of December to make you start to call it. And again, it's N E U R O C. And when you check out on the new Rainbow in the other on the passiveproject.com and you'll be able to find more about that on the description for first time customers. Only that is to it. And I say, you know, that my last place, like recently bought my own, do very good sizes and options. So please don't check. And, and so, like, if you want to find more about the answer, that can let me actually. Please say checked on at the new rainbow project social media channels and also on the website. And plus, let's make you pick and what hopefully do in the next year for the podcast. It's like, uh, you know, when you're on the version, thinking of this and be a new podcast, a series of events for like the recent episodes. For like short runs and then like, see like see we have really and be a uh, cold pass fighting with artistic uh, uh stones and themes and like we discussed in this episode. And so if you uh, like went to follow on Instagram at pass without stickly arts, come and so on to Facebook on all different social media 
platforms can find out also a bit more about that on the report. Main social media comes in on the web. So stay tuned for more announcements in the coming weeks and more guests involved with that podcast series and how that pans out. Also, we'll have an email address pass at newrainbookproject.com uh, and you also do want to get in touch and uh, just email that and if you've got any ideas as well to get in touch, remember to subscribe, comment for this podcast and also if you're not going if you just passwords that is kind of called please type the new rainbow project if you post about it on media or if you want to email me about it and you know again can I would like to know where your own experiences and also before this podcast. So that's it from me this week with me of the sticker. Singing out on a vent, so it's a neighboring castle or to stick